Hey, podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. I'm here with Matthias, and we are broadcasting from Washington, D.C. Uh, we're sitting in the museum today, uh, specifically in the museum's First Amendment Center with the executive director of the First Amendment Center, uh, Lada Knott. And uh, we're going to have a discussion about the, the state of the First Amendment right now and, and some of the history uh, uh, behind uh, the protection of the First Amendment. So um, thanks, for, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this is great. Uh, looking forward to it. So if you can just start for a second w with our audience with your career, um, you know, uh, where you went to school and, and what you studied. Oh, sure. Um, so I'm a lawyer. Okay. Um, I got my undergraduate degree at UC Davis I'm from mm -hmm. California. Yeah, um, nice. Yes. <laughs> oh, you too? Yes, I, I'm, a, I'm a California kid. Oh, yeah, yay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I still feel that way, even though I came out to the East Coast for law school. I went to Columbia, so uh, I spent a lot of time in New York before moving down to D.C. I still feel like a West Coaster at heart. Yeah. I still yeah. wonder why I can't wear shorts to work. You know, <laughs> yeah. so. Well, in this I way, know, that's, uh, that, that's for sure. Right. The sandals thing gets me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think uh, D.C. would be a lot more livable city if people didn't have to wear suits all the time. But, yeah. um, <laughs> right, and... So, so before you came to the first uh, to the museum and the First Amendment Center, what what sort of work were you doing? Uh, I was a litigator, so I did general commercial litigation. But uh, I worked for a couple of large law firms in New York. But like a, a lot of my work took me to uh, places where the law and technology intersect, oh, nice. and that uh, that actually is what led me here because uh, a lot of what I do at the First Amendment Center, I mean, there's a lot of things at the First Amendment Center, but we're an educational organization. Right. And one thing that I find extremely fascinating is the intersection between technology and free speech. And so right. that's something that we work on to educate people about. So, so if you could uh, actually talk a little bit about that, because that's that that's an area that, as as far as we know and as far as we can tell, isn't all that well developed from, from, from a legal standpoint. There's a lot of gray areas in terms of what is and what isn't permitted. The, sta the standards are still being developed as we speak. Um, what's what's your general impression of the state of the First Amendment with regard to a lot of the technology platforms that we use today, say social media, for example, or any kind of online interaction mm -hmm. around uh, around free speech today? Well, uh, in general, we are slowly but surely figuring it out. Um, what's interesting is that so the First Amendment only applies to government censorship of speech mm -hmm. or government right. punishment of speech. So if, say, Facebook decides to boot you from the platform because you, you keep posting hateful things or pornography or something, they can do that. That's their, their right to do it as a private company. But, I mean, you do have to think about how like companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google form our public conversations. So it's still important. And there are going to be instances, uh, like, uh, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this, but there's a lawsuit against President Trump right now for blocking mm -hmm. people from yep. his Twitter account. Absolutely. Because the argument can yeah. be made that he turned his Twitter account into a public forum where, like, he posts about policies and people uh, respond kind of like a town hall, basically. And right. so to block people from the town hall because they are critical of your policies, that's unconstitutional. And right, so right. it's interesting how things like that are happening or are kind of cropping up. Um, one thing, this hasn't gotten a, bunch of, uh, a lot of press lately, but uh, a couple years ago there was a case where um, the San Bernardino shootings yeah. where they were trying to get access to the terrorist yeah, iPhone yeah, and yeah. they wanted Apple to write a backdoor code so that they could right, do that. Right. And that raised the question, which was never really answered because... Uh, the they, FBI, they ended up standing down as far as I understand. Right, and right? the FBI found a way to do yeah, it in right. some other way, but is code speech is yes. asking Apple to write a piece of code. Is that actually compelling them to speak? Cause that's a, that's a big no, no under the first amendment. You right. can't, can't compel someone to say something. That, that this, this whole thing with, with the way companies interact with, with these, uh, with these protections is really interesting to me because if you just look globally at what companies are willing to do, particularly if you look at the way Google and Apple operate in China, uh, oftentimes succumbing to, to the demands of the government uh, in terms of censorship. Mm -hmm. um, it shows that, that companies are, are sometimes, when facing government pressure or, or enough government pressure, willing to fold um, for their commercial interests in order to access markets. And, and oftentimes when we think about technology, we're thinking about the Fourth Amendment. But I think we also have to think about the connection between the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment in that if you don't have Fourth Amendment protections, there's a chilling effect on the First Amendment. Um, That's a very good point. Surveillance has been shown to chill speech. If you know that you're yeah. being watched, you're going to say less. Exactly. Or even, or even if you even if you have the suspicion. Um, 
I just sort just around the same issue. You know, we're discussing public platforms and private companies' use of uh, of their own corporate policies to kind of regulate what is and what isn't presented um, on their platforms. Uh, I think that this question has just been raised. I think in the in the past twenty four forty eight hours, um, the Google actually revoked the Daily Stormer, the the far right website's domain name. GoDaddy, I think. Yeah, right, right. GoDaddy did as well, and then I think, and then Google took some measure took some measures as well with regard to access. Oh, didn't realize. And but and didn't and that raises and that raises a question for me because there, there, there's been a decent amount of discussion over the past, you know, I probably say around five years or so that that Google should be treated as a public utility Mm -hmm. because it's become so instrumental to the way that we operate as a society and that really you can't do anything without it on the internet right Mm -hmm. and and so my question is if Google serves such a critical function is it appropriate legally for for them to deem that a site like the Daily Stormer should no longer be accessible on their platform or should take some kind of measure to render it more difficult to access it on the basis of uh, political fallout, which is which is happening as a result of Charlottesville. I think I, I think that's a question that, that we need to ask ourselves because who knows how it could translate to other cases. We, we may agree that the Daily Stormer shouldn't, shouldn't be accessible or widely available on the basis that it, it is hateful speech and it promotes this hateful ideology, but it raises the question legally speaking is it appropriate and appropriate what are the consequences that's an excellent question um at this point in time since google hasn't been uh declared a public utility sure they can do it they're a private company but i mean you raise an excellent point that they are instrumental in the way that we communicate with each other and you can't really do anything without google Mm -hmm. so then you start thinking what should google do because in a way Every action that they take that has to do with free speech, you know, that's something that that resonates, that affects the way that we communicate with each other. And, you know, the funny thing is that you have Google, this private company, in a position of deeming what's appropriate and what's not. Right. Do you want the government deeming what's appropriate yeah. or what's mm-hmm. not? I, yeah. I don't think there's any winning there. Yeah, I don't yeah, really yeah, feel yeah, comfortable yeah. with either of those right, things. Right, right. So it's it's hard um because the the whole thing with the first amendment was basically to say like look we don't want the government telling us what's offensive we don't want the government being able to say like well you can say this but not that because you know that's a slippery slope right so -hmm. google has basically taken on that role which is also a little weird because google is beholden to shareholders i mean that's that's got to be the bottom line at the end of the day um so there may be no good solution to this and i do understand why they revoked the Daily Stormer's privileges. You know, they're a private company. They have the right to say, like, well, we don't want to do business with you. But but I, it does give me pause. And it, it I was actually talking to somebody about GoDaddy yesterday because mm-hmm. they revoked the, the domain name. And I kind of saw that as a different case because... It, there are other places where you can get right. hosting in a domain name. GoDaddy right. doesn't have a monopoly on that market, even if they're a prominent figure there. Right. But mm-hmm. Google is different. Yeah. Facebook, Twitter, they're different, I think, because if you are booted off one of those platforms, there may be no easy substitute mm-hmm. that you can find. Right. And right now, it's legal for them to do so, but it is something that has an actual, like, it has a real effect on speech. Uh, GoDaddy, not so much. You'll just find a new domain right. name somewhere. Right, 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 right. But then that leads to, to having to determine a threshold for market share at which point you become a utility. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's insane too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it yeah. raises a whole lot of questions also about you know, monopoly. Um, right. That kind of thing. And um, also just like we give a lot of power to these companies. Right. They do, yeah. they do have this censorship ability that our own government doesn't have. Right. And, you know, when you think about it, like, uh, they hold a lot of information about us. Like, going right. back to, to what you're saying about surveillance, they mm-hmm. they know a lot about us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like, a few months back, there were those alternative Twitter accounts. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yep, yep. And... Yep. Uh, the government tried to subpoena Twitter to get the identity of one of the, uh, the person behind one of those accounts. Mm-hmm. And Twitter resisted. Twitter was like, no, absolutely not. This is a violation of the First Amendment. Right. But, you know, there's a lot of subpoenas that, like, there are gag orders attached to them. Right. So they can't even right, make right, those right, public. Right, right. And it's kind of it's kind of nuts. All of our yeah. information lives with these companies. And 
right now there it seems like they are trying to be protective of it but right. again that's uh that's a company making decisions but so legally speaking as somebody who 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 deals specifically with the intersection of of technology and free speech where do you where do you see the the trend going in terms of our treatment of it are we going to continue to proceed on something of an ad hoc basis where we're primarily reactive to 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 situations that arise over time or are we going to try to proactively establish some kind of legal standard or maybe some kind of digital bill of rights, something along those lines? I mean, those, those are questions that are being discussed in, in some academic circles about whether or not we should attempt to establish some bill of rights that pertains to the degree uh, to which we operate on technological platforms today. Is that, is that, is that something that, that you think... Uh, is is viable moving forward, or something that's even desirable? How should how should we look at, at trying to approach this stuff? Well, personally, and I, a lot of smart people think that that would be a very good idea to kind of work out a structural framework for this. But I have my doubts about it, just because the circumstances and scenarios that arise when technology and free speech meet are things that we usually haven't thought of before. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And so, and all of the stuff that we're talking about today is stuff that I don't think people really envisioned a few years ago. So, yeah. I worry about creating a framework before you even know like what the future right. problems are. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I think that the trend is going to be that we, I mean, I, when I talk about the First Amendment, obviously I'm thinking about like in the United States, mm-hmm. this is how we do things. Yep. But of course, like Google and Facebook operate all around the world. And I, I once read a great Law Review article. Um, I think it was like Professor Marvin Amori. And he wrote something where he said that the Supreme Court is a regional court. Mm-hmm. You know, it's right. just because, you know, this is yeah. this is. Uh, the United States, and we have our own system, but, you know, when Google's trying to operate in Europe, and Europe is saying, like, well, there's a right to be forgotten, they comply with that, and that sort of affects everybody, right? So I think that we're going to have to look at it globally more than looking at, like, well, this is the law here as opposed right. to the law there. So so maybe more more of an issue regarding international law rather than something that's strictly domestic in terms of uh, establishing the guidelines and, and framework for which uh, these in which these companies operate. Absolutely. I think a framework is meaningless unless it's something that involves, like, lots of different global actors. Interesting. But I guess in the context of the United States, is there some danger in essentially letting, more or less letting the courts write the law on this because they're responding retroactively to all of these cases? For example, you know, in in a case um, like the San Bernardino case, had that been... um, and that been decided and established a precedent. I mean, because there's no existing mm-hmm. law to address it, essentially the courts are writing law in regard to technology policy, which is not a probably not their field of competence, and, and, and b you know not not within our, our conception of separation of, of powers, right? Well, it's either the courts or it's the legislature, I suppose. Um, and yeah. it's that is a very good question, and also one of those questions where like there's probably no right answer. Yeah, yeah. because yeah, uh, one of the big things that the court did for the internet and free speech um actually this is really nerdy but like it's about the 20th anniversary of this supreme court decision it was called reno v aclu Mm -hmm. and that's where they decided that the first amendment applies to the internet Mm -hmm. and the piece of legislature that was being challenged was this act that basically was like well um if you need to protect children from uh, from offensive content, pornographic content on the right. internet, and like uh, you know, you need to be responsible for that if you're an internet provider, and that's something that like uh, uh, the Supreme Court was like, this law is too broad. Mm-hmm. Like it's just it violates free speech principles, which do apply to the internet. Right. And the thing about that is that. Uh, there was a lot of foresight there because that decision is basically what you know what we stand on now, like right. how the modern internet was able to develop the way that it was. So, in a way, like I think sometimes the courts get it wrong, sometimes legislators get it wrong. It's yeah. mm-hmm. it, it's tough. Well, so let me ask um, in in regard more so to privacy than free speech, which, like we mentioned earlier, there, there's a, a strong connection. Um, in the 20th century, there was the establishment of the notion that that an individual had. Um, if an individual had a reasonable expectation of privacy, then they were protected from like wiretapping. So th- this came from a case where someone was in a phone booth and they got wiretapped and prosecuted for the wiretap. 
and uh, and the, the court said that in a phone booth you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. In what way has that transferred now that communications technologies have changed? What reasonable expectation of privacy exists on the internet? Is email considered more private than a private Facebook message, considered more private than a yeah, Facebook and post? And, 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 how, does and that, to, how does that apply? And to add a question to that, is there even a reasonable, reasonable expectation is there, yeah, is there, privacy yeah, yeah. on the internet? I mean... The truth is, when you're using a lot of different applications, you know that form that you really didn't read and that you consented yeah. to anyway? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a terrific South Park episode on that, actually. Really? Yeah, right yeah, 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 yeah. Resign away all your rights. Yeah. Right, you're like, eh, and it's it's ridiculous because you're, you're not going to scroll You're not going to read through Absolutely yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not, and everybody knows it. So yeah. I'm not sure how much of a reasonable expectation you have if you're using a, a platform like that. An email, by the way, like... I'm always shocked, or this comes from being a lawyer, but yeah. I'm always shocked by how many people think that the emails that they that they write at work are private yeah. somehow. Yeah, 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 yeah. They are yeah. not. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. As a litigator, but those are but those, are, but those are actually owned. Yeah, owned by the company itself, right? Yeah. If right. you're using right, so so I mean, and that's... I would also expect emails like if you have a university account, you know, the same thing might also apply. I'm not sure. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. absolutely. 100%. Yeah, and if someone is if there's a lawsuit uh, between your university and someone else, and they basically like or like okay hand over the emails you probably will have to <laughs> yeah, exactly. um yeah oh that's... my gosh so um the, the the other the other question i have about um just free speech today especially in the technological age is that it's it's become some, something of a flashpoint politically and so far as that you know different different ideologies will will target one another and accuse one another of censoring uh viewpoints on the basis of x y or z right i mean there's there's you know, it's been in the news recently. Google, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, um, it's been, oh, has been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same, on the other same side, thing. I, I think the case is called Tam, where yeah. the, the Supreme Court was deciding yeah. on the issue of whether or not the name of, of the band, The Slants, was offensive. Yes. Right. Um, so these Asian Americans coined the term to try to reclaim it essentially like mm -hmm. um like uh, for example queer in regard yeah. to yeah. in regard to the gay rights movement and um they were accused of being offensive right. and and uh i think the supreme court ruled in their favor saying you know they, they had the right yeah. and and that that could affect the redskins um right, oh, the redskins. right, right, right i actually right, right. um a few weeks ago i interviewed simon tam for my own podcast oh really oh, yeah nice. <laughs> oh no way we missed yeah. that oh. <laughs> we have to we have to we <laughs> yeah, have he's a very cool out. guy yeah but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, that was interesting because one point that he brought up, because, of course, a lot of people there were like, well, then the Redskins are totally going to get their trademark back now. But yeah. he did say, like, you know, you, you can't really you, you look at it as as uh, something that like, oh, this could be you know harmful to minorities, the Redskins getting their trademark back. But the way he saw it. Uh, that law that basically says that you can't like have an offensive uh, trademark. Mm -hmm. Yeah often is used against minority groups trying to reclaim those words, you know, right. like the slants, like a lot of groups that have like the word queer in them mm -hmm. and things like that. You yeah. Know? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I mean, the other thing is um, that's important that establishes that just because the government hands out a patent for such a group doesn't mean that they're saying that they're what, endorsing that them? they're endorsing this language or right. they're, they're, the government's not saying anything right. by by giving out the patent. And I, I think that notion also speaks to this censorious attitude that's kind of crept into the public arena in the sense that who who do we really want the government to make that determination on our behalf in terms of what we do or don't deem offensive right. again it comes back to the first speech mm -hmm. issue i mean if if the redskins trademark is is such an issue to people i mean the the, the common response I feel like in, in kind of our liberal tradition, our liberal framework is kind of vote with your dollars. Just don't buy apparel. Right. Right? I mean... And you can speak out against it, of course, right. all you want. But I, I do think, yeah, there's... The danger is handing the power to the government, exactly right. like you said. In a way, it's not like us versus them. It's all of us versus the government. I'm not... Right. I'm, you know, I'm just, I just think that they shouldn't have it in their hands to make that decision whether something is too offensive or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so the... Another thing that comes up with with technology and free speech is I, I mean it's it's come up in the past ten years in in really prominent fashion, and that's the that's the question of of government transparency, leaks and the press in terms of uh, what is appropriate, what isn't appropriate, what is legal, what isn't legal. Um, I think appropriateness has kind of fallen by the wayside insofar as that, you know, some of the leaks that we've seen 
recently have been of such volume that you know it's difficult to tell either way. Okay, how do you how do you determine that this that this has been harmful or beneficial or appropriate or inappropriate when you have to evaluate on a case by case basis? Except there are you know upwards of hundreds of thousands of different units that you have to that you have to measure and 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 make a determination for. But the question is, is it legal for the for the government to to actually prosecute? A journalist in pursuit of information regarding sources and and potential leaks. Well, I just want to real quick. I, I guess the, the the other curiosity here is during the Obama administration, uh, a government that that came in um, espousing transparency and, and claiming that it would be the most transparent. There were the most prosecutions um, than under any administration in the previous century since uh, the Espionage Act has been passed. And, and my question is. What was the determination within the Obama administration as to when to prosecute um, yeah. for leaks? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't say exactly what their their rationale was behind yeah. every uh, everybody they prosecuted. I think it was about eight people, which yeah. is more than all the other administrations combined. Yeah, um, I will say that. Well, first of all, like to answer your question about like when it's legal to mm-hmm. to to leak and when it's okay yeah. to prosecute a, right. a journalist or a leaker. Um, so. The law is pretty clear that if you leak information, um, you can be prosecuted under the Espionage Act if your intent was to harm the United States or aid another country. Um, it's a little bit less clear, like, if you were leaking information to the press in order to expose something, mm-hmm. like if that's whistleblowing, then it's a it's a bit of a different issue. And some people, like, uh, sometimes you can be prosecuted under different different statutes, like, oh, you stole government property or right. something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the journalists, they do get a lot of protection when it comes to uh, being able to publish leaked information. The law definitely protects their right to publish the information, and even if information was illegally obtained, as long mm-hmm. as they weren't the people who illegally obtained it, they have mm-hmm. the right to publish it. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of prosecuting journalists, there's been, you know, the thing about the Espionage Act is that it is possible to prosecute, I, you know, people have like raised this. It's like it would be possible to prosecute a journalist under the Espionage Act. Mm-hmm. It hasn't really been done. The closest it's come to is uh, the Obama administration. I think they subpoenaed like uh, James Risen. Thank you. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, but no one's done it. And you know, I think there might be real reasons. Like, I mean, first of all, for uh, putting journalism aside for a second, the people who leak information in the first place not many of them are actually prosecuted either, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. considering that leaking is extremely common. It, they just, I mean, going after leakers isn't something that most administrations do as much as you would think. Right. Right. Um, And I think the reason behind that is, is that leaking is, it can be a tool that administrations use to like kind of policy mm -hmm. to write for political reasons. Right. Yeah. To kind of test drive something different political factions might like leak to sort of like one, one up each other. So closing that channel isn't always, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it's not the best idea I think for most administrations. So, um, yeah. So I think that's one reason why they, you know, they don't go after every leaker or certainly every journalist who publishes a leak. It's, yeah, it's it's just uncommon. And so the Obama administration prosecuted, I think, eight people under the Espionage mm-hmm. Act, which mm-hmm. was kind of like, right. that was a huge number. It's remarkable. Actually. It's remarkable. Yeah. But the, the, and, and the strange thing to me is, strange thing to me is that they, they, they sought and obtained the, um, uh, um, uh, what, what, what is eluding me? Basically the, um, condamnation, the, Okay, we're gonna have to erase this. I cannot think of the word in English. It's um, the conviction. Of, thank you. They suddenly obtained the conviction of uh, of uh, Chelsea Manning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and at the end of at the end of his pre- and and they threw the book at him. I mean, he was yeah. he, at, at, at her. She was gonna be. She was gonna be. She's gonna be locked up for the rest of her uh, the rest of her life essentially. Yeah. And then at mm-hmm. the end of his presidency, he pardoned. Uh, president. Yeah, he pardoned her. He commuted her sentence. And it's it's not clear to me what kind of signal that sends in terms of political and legal legacy, right? I mean, we're going to throw the book at you, but we're going to do it for a symbolic reason that's essentially an empty gesture legally? Or what? what, It's hard to parse what exactly was intended in terms of messaging. And and the the other question I have, well, we'll start with that one. Well, you're right. I think it is hard to parse. I think that, you know, you were asking, like, what 
rationale they had for the prosecutions that they did pursue. And I think part of me thinks that uh, some of these decisions are based on like a really high profile leak. You mm -hmm. need to sort of take a stance like, oh, well, obviously, like you took all this, these documents and uploaded them. And like, we've right. got to like take a stand there and show that, you know, yeah. uh, violators will be prosecuted cleaning house in a way. Mm -hmm. um, the pardon, you know, it might have been because like, uh, actually, what's kind of interesting is that uh, some uh, one of the reporters for BuzzFeed like released a story not that long ago um, about a Justice Department, I think it was a Justice Department or a Defense Department memo that showed that uh, the information that uh, Chelsea Manning leaked was not harmful to right. the United States. Yeah. So yeah. that could have been part of it. I mean, it's... Well, on, on the basis of establishing a legal precedent, like, I, I don't think that they would have made the decision on the basis of whether or not it was harmful to the United States. I think they wanted to establish a legal precedent to just say, if you leak the information, you're going to get prosecuted. Right. Um, it, it might also have been just uh, almost like a sort of humanitarian concern type thing where where the punishment might have seemed excessive even to the government that had prosecuted right yeah. and, and they said look before we get out of here maybe maybe we should Let's right our wrong a little walk bit. this back a bit mm -hmm. yeah. yeah because i mean i mean it's not like I, I think chelsea manning was in prison for seven years is that correct yeah yeah, so, yeah. yeah six seven years, six seven yeah. years yeah so um maybe they felt like all right you know chelsea manning had done her time yeah and, and it was time solitary to too. Yeah, right. It was really, yeah. really brutal. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense that they, yeah. I think that when they choose to prosecute leakers or when the Obama administration did, a lot of it was like, well, we got to send a message here that, you know, yeah. it's not going to be. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's difficult to read um, what exactly the, the, the intentions are towards, I mean, especially transparency. You said it yourself. Yeah. Uh, the notion somehow that the Obama administration is going to be the most transparent one in modern history is absolutely asinine at this stage. I mean, it's, yeah. it does it's completely untenable now. Right. right. And they were a pretty closed White House, actually. Um, yeah. This White House is, although they have a lot of, uh, you know, like things like the temporary ban of like cameras from press mm -hmm. conferences, although they, they've made a lot of moves like that are anti-press moves. Right. But it's a very leaky White House, actually. Yeah. So yeah, and I and and ironically, yeah. I mean, the, the the this is my this is my favorite fact is that is that you talk to anybody in the business and the Trump administration has straight up saved the news industry yeah. a lot of yeah. ways <laughs> because of because of because of the fact that all of a sudden it, you know the sensationalism of it has has brought so much traffic and so many eyeballs back to TV back to uh, the mainstream back, media that he maligns. The, the, the right? New York Times, yeah. Washington Post, like the big yeah. media institutions, <laughs> yeah. are thriving. They're yeah. really doing well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's the irony of it. But but I actually I want to ask you because because on on the the First Amendment Center website, um, it, you were part of a project where you created a report card um, yeah. about the, the the five First Amendment freedoms, and of those First Amendment freedoms, the one that got the lowest rating from from a um, fifteen panelists was the freedom of press right but what was more interesting to me than the fact that it got the lowest rating was the fact that it was the most polarized so mm -hmm. half of the people on the panel uh gave the freedom of the press right now the current state of it a d and then the other half of the people minus one gave it a b and then what that one person gave it an a mm -hmm. so how do you how do you explain that yeah. that polarization over over the perception of what's going on in the press right now and the degree to which it's free yeah like why is there why is there such a disparity in terms of interpretation of that it's that i mean i was in a weird way i was a little bit proud of that because when we were putting together this report card which by the way is like a quarterly project to track yeah. how yeah. uh the first amendment is doing um it was very important to us that when we put together a grading panel that they be from all sides of the political mm -hmm. spectrum yeah um because, like, that's, you know, ultimately, like, if you really want to track something, you need to get the opinions of more than uh, people who are, like, liberals or conservatives. Right, right, you need right. them all, right? right? So I think that uh, that polarization kind of reflects the disparity of the panel. Um, and what I found uh, just looking at responses is that on the, the people who gave Freedom of the Press a D, a lot of what we're looking at it, um, is, quite honestly, like, although it's... I think it's great that uh, the WAPO and the New York Times have been doing fantastic journalism mm -hmm. and they are doing mm -hmm. very well. But uh, in, I know like the news cycle moves very quickly, but uh, not very long ago, just a few weeks ago, like there were, there were journalists who were being assaulted for asking questions. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, 
and people were cheering it on, right. you know, and the question, it wasn't like, oh, I'm standing right by this guy's house and I popped out of the bushes. It was somebody asking like, uh, I think he was running for the Senate. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Over in Montana. Yeah, in Montana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it was a special election. Right. And, and yeah, he, he almost, he almost went to jail for not showing up in court actually. Like Greg something or another, mm-hmm. I can't remember his name. Um, and it was, yeah, he assaulted right. a Guardian journalist. Right, who was asking a policy question, yeah. which is what journalists do. And the idea that people cheered that afterwards, there was a, I think the people who are worried about freedom of the press are worried that, you know, like the press is supposed to be the watchdog on the government. That's mm-hmm. what they do. And the idea that, you know, that they're constantly being called out as like traitors, as the enemy of the people, as like people who should be beaten for doing their jobs was very troubling to some people. And it is very troubling. Yeah. It's, and, you know, I think it's, it, it's something that people need to remember is that um, the press isn't supposed to be on the side of the government or really anybody, you know, yeah. they're supposed to like be keeping watch on how things yeah. are going on. And it's so supposed to be an adversarial relationship. It's supposed to be adversarial. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, but I think I, I want to clarify the concept of adversarial and that yet, like, yes, it, it is adversarial, but I think this um, sort of cycle of recriminations wherein the administration, forget the administration, the president himself literally attacks specific journalists like mm-hmm. uh, particularly you see it all the time with like uh, what's his name Jim Acosta from yeah. CNN yeah I mean the the relate the, the, the relationship between an, that individual journalist and the president is is almost a microcosm of what's so scary about the polarization right. of the press right now right um, and there's this the, what I really don't like about the way terms have been have been used particularly fake news is um, is the fact that it draws this equivalence um, this this just sort of you know inescapable equivalence between what it is Trump saying, um, what and whether or not it's true, and then what what the the factual reporting is that's yeah. going on, you know, yeah. and, and so that, I like that's different than an adversarial relationship. That's that's you know almost, there's there's animosity involved, yeah. right? And and you you raise the question of fake news, which I think is 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 really important, and and. This is this is the this is the difficulty I see in just in, in trying to understand the term is that it's being used and it's being used so loosely and tossed around so casually that um, it doesn't distinguish between when one says fake news to designate a bias versus fake news to designate literally fake news yes. has false information yes. that has Something been fabricated right. disinformation yeah. and how do you how do you distinguish between those two things and what does it mean for the freedom of the press that we seemingly can't really separate that out right. that, that, that we we're not even able to differentiate the use of the term and that was a that was a huge issue for our graders as well because fake news basically if you think that the role of the press is to provide you information so that you can make the best possible decisions, like the concept of fake news, of fabricated news, is a blow to the press. And also yeah. just that confusion of the term. Yeah, no, I right. mean, that's basically, it makes it seem like there is no truth. Right. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into a philosophy debate with you guys, but yeah. there is one. No. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 no, absolutely. And there's definitely a difference between bias, which, I mean, everybody... I mean, yeah. I don't think it's a mistake. That, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that there right. are media biases, despite you know attempts and claims at objective judgment. Fact of the matter is, is that it doesn't really exist right. altogether. Although, I mean, how how can you not be biased to some degree? That's true. Although there is a one of the conservative panelists who, yeah. gave, uh, like one of his issues was that members of the press, like not definitely not every member mm-hmm. of the press, but some of them like they refer to themselves like as members of the resistance and stuff right. like that. And I think right, that's right, a right. I'm not sure that's the best angle to take if you're yeah. reporting on the government because it's a it presupposes something, I guess. And absolutely I, and also like I don't think you need to I'm sorry to reveal my own political yeah, bias, yeah. but do you really need to presuppose something? This administration has been uh, yeah. giving yeah, yeah, the press yeah, much to of report ammo. on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, plenty of ammo. So let me let me just uh, play the devil's advocate for the sake of it. I, I remember seeing an interview with Anna Marie Cox, who's a New York Times reporter right now, and, and she was talking about the fact that she was at um, some of these demonstrations that happened right after the uh, right after the election. She was standing in front of Trump Tower, not my president, the signs, the whole thing, mm-hmm. and, and she justified it on on the basis of my profession doesn't limit my First Amendment, my First uh-huh. Amendment free speech. Uh-huh. Um, I just wanted to pr- provide the, oh, yeah. the other side of that. From, from the journalist perspective, particularly a journalist who wants to be an activist. Right, and you're definitely not going to turn off your yeah. your opinion on something yeah. just because you're a journalist. And I, I 
no, I absolutely understand that and think that's fine. I think just um, in I, I maybe it's because I have my own bias against biased reporting. Yeah. Honestly, I think yeah. that it's more. Um, and again, if you if you're saying that you are a member of the resistance and you're a journalist and writing about it, I mean that's you know that's yeah. your right to do, but. I think journalism is more powerful to me, at least when it comes from this place of like, well, these are, these are our objective obs- mm-hmm. observations of what went on and we mm-hmm. investigated the hell out of them because right. that's our job. And yeah, I, I think that I understood that panelist's point about that being like, for him, that undermined the credibility of the right. press a little bit. Again, yeah. it's definitely yeah. not every member of the press. Right. Can I actually, on this subject of, of objectivity, um, there, there's, Matthias and I have talked about this a lot in the sense that there's been this rise in the notion that that objectivity is impossible. And again, we won't go down a a philosophical road here, Mm -hmm. but um, I want to ask specifically in the way the New York Times has structured its content. Um, Some readers have observed, um, particularly, you know, through the ombudsman for the New York Times, that that there's an increasing reliance on what they call news analysis, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily editorial. It does not show up on the editorial page. It can show up on the front page. It's called news analysis, and it's somewhere between objective factual reporting and opinion and can can you explain that phenomenon and 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 how big media institutions i don't want to pick on the new york times alone but how big media institutions are starting to incorporate these trends right this analysis yeah uh it's weird because i think we have come to almost expect it from our news media like Mm -hmm. we it's not always a bad thing to have an expert providing their analysis of what this means. Although it is sort of a deviation, I think of what we used to think of as news content, which is, this is what happened. You, you know, what do you think of it? You figure that out. Um, part of it is just, I think that I, you know, with the rise of news on the internet, there's people have to produce so much news, Mm -hmm. so many stories. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of it is going to fall back on analysis and having an expert write up their opinion it's not a problem as long as it's very clear that this is analysis. Right. Right. Um, but, but it, it, is there, is there some degree of obfuscation using the word analysis? Because like analysis can say, all right, well, I'm objectively, you know, saying right. this is what it means yeah. for these people. And this is what yeah. it means for this, these people. But I mean, it, the more and more you read some of these, some of these um, things that often appear on the front page, you notice that, that there is some degree of, of, opinion involved mm-hmm. in, in how you're analyzing it. I mean, that w- when you delve into trying to analyze something, there's inherently uh, a, a more, uh, there are inherently more biases that, that are reflected in the way you analyze it and the way right. you approach certain groups of people. I, I think you're right. And yeah. I do see your point that yeah. it's, uh, yeah. sorry. You're yeah. Well, I, I, I think, I mean, so, so for what I, I, I think it's actually, I, I don't think it's that new of a phenomenon. I just think that it's been taken up by entities that hadn't taken it up mm. in the past. Because right. if you if you think of it, Fox News has been doing news analysis since its inception in '96, right? I right. mean that that was the very premise of right. fair and balanced. Is right. okay, we're going to analyze in a supposedly fair and balanced way, and that's how that's how they they've made their bones in the media universe. Right. And I think right. people are are picking up on it because they it's realize successful. that it, it's successful, it works, and it's persuasive more than anything else people seem to respond to it which right. is which says something about us as an audience might and and to that point my question the question that I've been asking myself of late regarding media polarization mm-hmm. and the fact that you know the liberal echo chamber conservative echo chamber um, the, the notion of the, the, the fairness doctrine mm. um, that was revoked in 1985 mm-hmm. right and and the kind of effect that that had on news and the way that news was presented and the way that news was structured as well because you know if the fairness doctrine is in place it mandates that you structure whatever information you're presenting in a certain way so that it responds to a broad base of ideological views right mm-hmm. so that they're they're fairly represented regardless of the platform in which they're presented on so my my question there is it seems impossible today seems absurd even ridiculous the notion that you know you would now reintroduce a rule that would compel mm-hmm. uh somebody like entities like breitbart or infowars or alternate you know these these fringe media organizations that are on the farther ends of the the spectrums but that have been growing in their audiences that you would impose on them this this viewpoint that would fundamentally right. defeat the purpose of their business model but at the same time well, is there is there some? I mean, the rationale behind the fairness doctrine was it comes from a time when there were uh, 
broadcast television, what, there were three channels, mm-hmm. I think? Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's, uh, you know, the whole thing with, with uh, having a fairness doctrine, at first glance, you're like, wait, that seems like it would violate the First Amendment, right? Mm-hmm. And the right. reason why the rules were different for television um, in its early days is because there, there's a limited number of TV channels, and also right. TV, uh, the uh, courts and legislators found it to be inherently different than, say, reading a newspaper where it's like, you sit down, you open up the newspaper, you have chosen to read this. Whereas right. TV, sometimes, or radio, like, it just kind of invades your brain without right. you actually making uh, an affirmative choice to watch something. It just yeah. keeps coming. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. why they, they had the fairness doctrine, which is you need to pre- present both points of view in your news mm-hmm. programming. There's only three channels, and um, that's yeah. th- that's what we've got to have. I think that it doesn't really fit into da- today's world because... Uh, we have a billion different channels, right. and also since most people do get their news, I think from the internet, uh, yeah. a lot of, that's a lot more. You seek it out, and yeah. you get it, as opposed to like, well, the news is just you're you're sitting passively, and it hits you, and it's one of three channels, and it would be really good to present both sides right. of the the issue because otherwise you're never going to hear the other side of the issue. Yeah. So I do think it's like a, a bit of a different world, but I do take your point that. It's hard because we have so many media outlets that have made their business on basically entrenching themselves mm-hmm. in a certain point of view. And you're right. If people do like that, they respond to that, which is, I mean, that says something I think about us as yeah. human beings really more than anything else. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I do think that like, you know, BBC style news right. where you're just like where you're getting the facts and then you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. That's probably better for a democracy. It really is. But it's also something where I'm not sure. And again, this is one of those things where there might not be a good solution. If that's the case, if we're presenting you with the facts and you need to analyze them for yourself, I'm not sure if we've ha- we'd have that many people who would do that work, you know? Mm-hmm. And this isn't me accusing everyone else of being lazy. This is accusing yeah. me. This is me just saying everyone is very busy. So yeah. it might that might be why they respond more to analysis that comes with their news. Oh, and I also did want to say that, I mean, there's a lot, there there are a lot of problems in the world today, yeah. and definitely in the media world today, and with the polarization of everything. But, you know, I think there is also a lot of nostalgia for the time where, like, the godlike voice of Walter Cronkite yeah, is telling yeah, you what's yeah, what. Absolutely. And that's, yeah. and, you know, he great newsman and yeah. all of that. But, I mean, that does ignore the fact that there was really, like, only one point of view coming through. Right, right, you know? right. Sure. Yeah, the, 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 that's... Yeah, I mean, the, I, you put you you put yourself back in the time of the Vietnam War and the degree to which the country was polarized and how polarizing the the fact that there was that one single voice that seemed to be almost state sponsored, so to speak. I mean, those were, those were some of the allegations that were that yeah. were made against Walter Cronkite at that particular point in time mm-hmm. and against the government as well in terms of censorship. Oh yeah. So it's 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 funny to see how the tables have turned in that <laughs> regard and the degree to which they have. Um, how do you how do you see the the this this topic of, of of censorship and who's censoring who and whether or not there there are echo chambers? I mean, there are echo chambers, but how they evolve and 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 just generally speaking, how our own how our own perception of the First Amendment is is shifting right now. How do you what's your sense of 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 where this this kind of stuff is going? Oh man, well. One thing that we, we do a survey every year, it's called the State of the First Amendment Survey, and we ask people what they think of things. And one thing that we have observed is that when something when, when something violent happens, like the Boston Marathon bombing or 9-11, um, afterwards people are, people start, people say, yes, we have too much freedom. They're less supportive of the First Amendment. They're less supportive of civil liberties. And because, of course, safety becomes a bigger concern than, than freedom. And that's something that, you know, the Charlottesville uh, white power rallies and everything, that I, that's... I've read a lot of commentary um, where people are angry that the ACLU helped um, those uh, some of those groups secure a permit to right. protest in Charlottesville. And, you know... Leaving aside that these protests erupted in horrible violence, mm-hmm. um, white power group groups do have the right to get a mm-hmm. permit to protest. Right. Um, permits are supposed to be, it's okay for the government to require a permit for a protest, but like it's got to be neutral. They can't mm-hmm. discriminate based on viewpoint. And so the ACLU was not supporting Nazis, but basically supporting, um, that, principle. supporting that principle. And then, of course, you know, 
terrible things happened and there's a backlash against that and people are angry that they that they did that at all and yeah. ang- and why do we need to allow nazis to protest nazis are the worst i mean yeah. they are literally the worst <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? yeah i mean i i was listening i was listening the other day alan dershowitz was on the radio um talking about some of this other stuff and, and one of the things that he brought up as as a test for these principles is is the shoe on the other foot test which is basically <laughs> the the most simple test but a really effective one to to test your commitment to certain principles which is if, if you know if this was my side out there protesting you know if this was was my uh my cause the thing that that gets me going out there protesting you know how would i feel about someone else um someone else trying to limit the, the right to free speech and and uh, it's it's hard to extend that. It's hard to extend that even to the most hateful and, and awful oh, people yeah. in the country. Yeah. Um, but fundamentally, you know, um, you know, you 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 establish precedents by by violating these things. That's right. Yeah. And the uh, First Amendment issues come up when you get these egregious, offensive groups. Like those are how you define the boundaries of, of free speech. Yeah. And this is something that. I wrote an article about this once and I said that everybody hates the First Amendment. Like, yeah. you know, it, everybody likes it in theory, but like when it comes to actual situations yeah. when like this group you hate is has the right to protest or the right to speak, then people kind of back off of it right. a little bit and don't like it as much. And then, of course, I got a bunch of angry emails saying, I like the First Amendment, you communist. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, there's that Voltaire quote, like, I disagree with what you say, mm. but I will defend until my death the right to say it. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to remember this, but somebody like wrote about that and was like, that is such a lie. That's yeah. like yeah, the yeah, cheapest yeah, yeah, form yeah, of yeah, bravery. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Yeah, that's true. Like we, yeah. we want to believe that, but it's hard, especially when it's Nazis, you know, right. it's, mm-hmm. I get it, but it is a principle that, yeah, you're right. You need the precedent there. And there will eventually be groups that you support who want to protest and you need the precedent that you can't discriminate based on viewpoint when you're mm-hmm. deciding who you're going to let have a permit. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to real quick, just outside of the, the avenue of, of legal limitations on, on the First Amendment, um, because this is a college audience, I think I think that one thing about extending um, the right for another individual to speak that's difficult is, yes, we can extend the legal protection, but sometimes, and this is a lot more nebulous, but there's not the social protection. You know, yes. there's a high social cost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to speaking freely and, and in, an, in, in the academy or in, in universities, I think it's that social cost, which is, um, to, use, to use the word from before, chilling yeah. the effect on, on free speech on, on college campuses specifically. And I, that's, that could probably be a whole other podcast episode, but I, I yeah. just wanted to, to note that before we, we no, left. Yeah. Absolutely, because that's a big thing. It's yeah. like you have the legal right, but if you're... It, you know, if you're afraid that somebody's going to punch you in the face every time you express that right, like how yeah. Yeah. how powerful is that right? Yeah. But you know, one one of the things that uh, my boss Gene Paulsinski, who's yeah. a fantastic guy, he um, he always says that you have to listen to hate speech, to offensive speech, if only to like practice and be able to counteract it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I see like with uh, you know, when people protest uh, speakers on college campuses, that's fine. That's your right to protest. Absolutely. And, you know, to, to tell people like this is why this speaker is wrong or offensive, that's fine, too. But blocking them from speaking or shouting them down while they're speaking robs you yeah. of the opportunity to hear what they have to say. And yeah. I mean, either you're going to be like, wow, I am so convinced by it. That's probably yeah. less likely. Yeah. But uh, what I think is very helpful is to listen to someone's ideas so that you can come up with counter arguments. Right. right. And and I mean we 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 attended an event um, <laughs> yeah. uh, where Alan West actually came to speak at BU at one yeah. point, and um, I actually th- I, I found it inspiring that that there were people there were people so uh, you know Alan West has has said some of the most Islamic phobic th- Islamophobic things you can imagine, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which put yourself in the shoes of a Muslim. You're going. You're attending. The, the, the talk of somebody who is egregiously, egregiously discriminatory towards you. And there were members of the audience who, who sat through the entire his entire his entire talk without, you know, very respectful, very polite, and then and then basically bombarded him with, with very well, difficult questions about the statements that he made, put him on the spot. Just to be clear though, in, in a Q and A session, like in yeah, a formal Q and A session. And and 
and the effect the effect of that was was pretty dramatic yeah. in terms of in terms of setting up the contrast between between this principled position of okay here I am I granted you the right to speak but here's what you said right and what do you how do you respond to that right and I mean what was remarkable too is like when you say like here's what you said how do you respond to that like they they read yeah they read his statements got in a back and forth with him and. and there was there was one particular student who who was so well read on the subject, and Alan West surprisingly not surprisingly, but was was so well read on on the history of Islam too that they got in a really interesting debate, and I think it was, yeah. um, and they were they were referencing like like really old documents um, uh, and things that they had read uh, about the history of Islam, and and it was illuminating. That's I mean, the, the actual the actual yeah. discussion that they got into was really illuminating. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of people came plus, plus a lot of people came away. Item one with with new information, and then mm-hmm. item two, also I, I think marked by by that that level of exchange because right. it because by by censoring you don't really allow that to happen, but at the same time that that friction is what what really generates a lot of insight, and also it's also more interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's, and that it's means... more compelling. Yeah, like, yeah. basically, it makes for more interesting yeah. stuff. Right, and that's yeah. like kind of ideally that's what free speech is for, right. so that we can have arguments, peaceful arguments, yeah. but. Yeah. Yeah, and I know often at times it doesn't turn out that way, but I, I think that, yeah, it's wonderful that you're able to, like, engage in a debate in that level. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. the most powerful way you can oppose someone is to listen to them and then counter their arguments. Right. Yeah. Um, um, I wanted to, I, I mean, I, I know we're running towards the end of our time here, and um, these issues are really important. And actually, the, the center that we run this podcast out of, the Howard Thurman Center, often hosts discussions in order to sort of practice this civil engagement, civil discourse. Um, and I wanted to ask you, I, I know you have a podcast um, what, uh, how, can, how can students who are listening to this podcast hear more from you and more about these issues? Oh, well, our podcast is called The First Five because the First Amendment provides you five freedoms. Mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, release on a weekly basis an episode uh, that revolves around a question about this First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, can uh, your employer fire you for your speech? Or, right. you know, what are leaks? <laughs> and yeah. Things like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you can check it out. Our website is museuminstitute.org slash podcast and that'll take you there we're also on itunes the first five nice i have uh i I have one one final question this is kind of back to the the the, the whole government journalist relationship uh legally speaking is do you see do you see a day anytime soon uh, kind of given the trend where the government does elect to step into the legal arena and face off with journalistic privilege and actually put a journalist on the stand with the with the with serious legal threat threat of serious legal consequences. Do I see it? Uh, maybe, and it, yeah. it's scary. That's that's something that we've been worried about uh, since this administration came into office. Partly because the Obama administration set a uh, pretty distressing precedent of using the Espionage mm-hmm. Act, mm-hmm. and. It's always been, I think, in the back of everyone's mind that it could be used against a journalist. So it's possible. I, I hope not, yeah. because I think that... And this is another reason why... Uh, sorry, I'm, like, answering your question with, like, a please, longer detour. Please, but, please, um, please, yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons why, like, I think that the press's legal protections have held up just fine. But one reason that people are very worried about this perception of the press as the enemy is yeah. because a lot of times, like, you need to count on people getting angry when the press is silenced or when people go after the press, you know? And putting a journalist on the stand for publishing uh, information that has been leaked to them, you know, that's that's something that journalists do. That's something that they're, uh, there's so much protection built into our system for publishing information because it's not seen as, oh, you're a traitor to America. It's seen as exposing misconduct. Right. It's seen as making America better. Right. Um, when people stop seeing the press that way, when, they see, when they're inclined to see the press in a negative light, you know, you worry that the administration will be able to, to prosecute a journalist without too much pushback. That's the concern. Um, we wanted to thank you so much for your time, um, but then also the, the work you do uh, at, the, at the museum, um, educating people about the First Amendment. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks for having me.